Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the Program on Law, Communities, and the Environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Michelle Wild Anderson, a law professor at Stanford and author of the recent book, The Fight to Save the Town, Reimagining Discarded America. Michelle, thanks for joining me today. Oh, thanks, Mike. I'm so glad to be here. So it's such a such a beautiful book. It's just, you know, wonderfully written. The the stories are are just incredibly compelling. Uh, it's just really um, a pleasure to read, and I, I encourage the the listeners to to pick up a copy. I, have, I actually listened to it on Audible on an audiobook version, and it really uh, it really sings in that format. But maybe just to to orient us, uh, could you give us a little maybe thumbnail description of of the project and what the book is all about? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for that generous introduction. That's really sweet of you. Um, I did edit it to death, so I hope the sentences <laughs> did, did show all of that TLC. Um, so the book is, I'll start with the subtitle. It's its called Reimagining, Dis- the, the subtitle is Reimagining Discarded America, as you said. And that's really a look, the, the book really sits with that problem of the giant areas of the country that have not yet found a foothold in the modern economy. And, um, and in particular, it's sitting with one specific, really hard policy problem, which is that we have a lot of cities, um, including small towns and rural counties, where there's so much poverty layered across the entire tax base that it's hard for the local government to sustain basic services. So I think of this problem as governments that are both poor and broke, um, or places Mm -hmm. that are both poor and broke. And those are mutually um, reinforcing problems, that when a place is really poor, it is more likely to be broke. And when a place is broke, it is more likely, its people are more likely to stay poor. Yeah, you, you um, part of the, the format of the book is that you select four quite different places to kind of tell the story of places that, as, as you say, are both poor and broke. And I'll say that, um, you know, that this book and, and the stories you tell have re- personal resonance for me. Uh, I grew up near a, a town in upstate New York um, in a region of the of the state that's had some economic hard times. And I think the, the town that I grew up near... Uh, the big, the biggest town that I grew up near fits the definition that you have in the book of uh, border to border poverty, which is um, I think it's in the, the the town I grew up in was is thirty three percent below the poverty line, which is above the criteria that you have, which is either twenty or twenty five percent. Yeah, and then um, the median income compared to the state is sixty uh, percent. I wasn't sure if that was family income or personal income, but it's. Um, but it's both for this town, Binghamton, New York, the, uh, the uh, personal income, median personal income is 60% of the state um, and median family income is 50% of the state. So I think that falls well within the uh, criteria that you have. And, um, and a lot of the problems that you describe in the book, uh, I, I definitely um, am familiar with from, from my own hometown. Yeah, I think the Hudson Valley, I I could have included Newburgh, New York in this book. I didn't, Mm -hmm. but there's a bunch of towns in New York that that would qualify under the definition that I use. But like you said, it sits with four places and I chose them because all of them are first of all, they're just exceptional places on their own, in their own right. Their histories are rich. Their leadership is um, really good right now. And they have, um, they have a larger story to tell when you put them next to each other, because they're really different from each other. Mm -hmm. Four places um, represent, I think the larger range of, um, of towns facing this problem of being poor and broke. So some places like that are big cities, some are smaller cities or inner ring suburbs, and some are rural areas. And similarly, this problem ranges from all white places to predominantly black or Latino places to super diverse places. Um, And finally, this problem ranges across politics and ideology. So I wanted to hold um, places that, you know, consistently vote conservative, consistently vote progressive and, you know, places that swing back and forth. So I chose four places that are different from each other and therefore help to dislodge any kind of story we might tell about, you know, why why places 
face this problem along lines of race or ideology or scale. Um, but, you know, they, these four places are kind of one of a kind, as all towns are. They have their own unique history and their own unique networks of people. But they have a lot in common when you put them next to each other, too. Yeah. And one of the things that is really um, fun and interesting and um, different about this book that, that you've offered us is, as you say in the book, it's it's not a data-driven wonky policy book. I, I, I just, I dove into the wonkiest part, which was the definition of border to border poverty. But other than that, there's, it's not, a, it's not full of statistics. It's not full of charts and graphs. Uh, this is a book, um, you know, with narratives, with stories in them. And so I guess one question just to, to ask is why, why that approach? Why, why not a policy book? Um, why was it important to take the, you know, take on these, the storytelling role, um, or the storytelling project? Um, you know, uh, is there something wrong with the stories that we're currently telling about these places? And, and how do you see your book fitting within this kind of narrative of, of the town maybe, or, or of these towns in any case, um, uh, that we have in our culture? I love that question. And I thought so much about this issue. There were times when I really thought I wanted to do a more data-driven policy book. Um, we have some books, like I'm thinking, looking at my desk right now, um, Alan mm-hmm. Malik's The Divided City is an outstanding policy book that deals with some of the bigger public policy challenges that are at the base of um, of this book. We have some good examples out there of policy work, but I think you know, as as I went deeper and deeper into this project, really in all the years since the Great Recession, when I started to work on municipal uh, financial collapse, I noticed that we have really dominant stories that we tell about broke places and about poor places. And those stories deal with violence and street crime, this kind of bullets flying in the middle of a hellish landscape kind of story. We have corruption stories in which we don't listen to any or don't pay attention to any news out of towns like this, except when there's some kind of you know, public scandal or mismanagement event that draws attention to them. Um, We have uh, stories of hopelessness, almost like eulogistic writing of dying places in which we sort of grieve the past and, you know, sort of engage in this kind of nostalgic um, memorialization of sort of a lost heyday for these places. So we have really dominant narratives about poor and broke places, and they're kind of everywhere. And I started to really believe that those narratives themselves were destructive to the political will to keep working on these hard problems. Mm -hmm. And because millions of people live in places like this, you cannot simply wish them away. And I think the Electoral College and the Senate, you know, the structure of the Senate should always remind us that um, that at some level, our politics and the structure of our government are bound to show up for the places where Americans live. And if we don't, then um, they will take the government um, in the direction that they wish. So there's a larger um, there's a larger narrative problem, I think we have or almost a kind of mythology about these places that does a lot of damage. So I didn't want to sugar. I didn't I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do what in photography is called ruin porn. And I didn't want to write a, you know, happy, heroic, look at these amazing people, they've got it, like, yay, Mm -hmm. clap, and then we can all sort of walk away from these hard problems. So I really tried to, as a narrative matter, sort of hold both of those truths at the same time. Like, yes, these problems are devastating, the hardships are real, the challenges are intergenerational at this point. And there are extraordinary people that are working on these problems, and um, and we can't just wish these places away. Yeah. Um, so 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 that that all is um, you know that that makes a ton of sense. It's, you you brought up the Senate and Electoral College. This is my law. You know, I guess my law professor brain immediately. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, noted that, and so my my question that just comes out of that is. Um, just kind of what you're what you're thinking is on that. So it sounded 
like possibly that this was actually like a justification for the way that we have the Senate apportioned by states and, and the Electoral College, or it's a it's a it's a it's a feature of that system. So I, I was just curious to have you say more because I'll just I will admit I don't talk to too many defenders of the Electoral College <laughs> uh, or the um, uh, or the or the kind of apportionment of political power by states that we have in the Senate. There's folks offer various arguments for why that's a bad idea. So I was curious if you had an alternative perspective, because I think that would be worth uh, worth airing, because um, I don't hear it very often. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to find me, Mike, as a defender of the electoral <laughs> Okay. And given the distribution of our population right now, nor will you find me as a defender of um, the, the structure of the Senate, given modern urbanization. But um, what I what I really meant by that comment is let me back up and just say this is the language that I use in the book. I think there's a strand of thinking out there that's dominant primarily in econ, um, mm-hmm. but a strand of thinking that I label the suitcases solution, which is this idea that the answer to chronic poverty is that people should move toward growth and move toward mm-hmm. jobs. And, um, you know, if you think of that spatially, a lot of how that looks is moving people, for instance, out of the Rust Belt and toward the Gulf or toward the West. And here you and I are as both environmental law scholars sort of living in the era of climate change. The idea that we're going to solve our long term problems as a nation by moving our people away from the freshwater patrimony of the Great Lakes (laughs) and toward the inundation zones of the the Gulf is honestly totally absurd, but also financially frightening because mm-hmm. the heroic levels of infrastructure that would be needed to spare the Gulf from climate, you know, from climate dislocation is so expensive. I mean, when I look fiscally at Florida's future, it is dark. And you know, let it be said here that the state of Florida has such predictable municipal bankruptcies and state grief in front of it in its finances. Um, anyway, I digress. The point is that, you know, here we are, we have this suitcases kind of fantasy that we can, you know, move people toward opportunity. And I think what we saw in 2016, although this has been brewing for a long time before that, what we saw in 2016 was a bunch of homeowners in places like Pennsylvania who are having trouble, you know, making a decent living and supporting their families who said no thanks to the offer that they should go be a tenant janitor on a floodplain outside of Houston. And I think that's kind of the the larger um you know, a, a larger problem in our politics right now is that you've got a lot of people that said, I can't move, I won't move. What you're asking me to move toward in terms of the cost of housing and the cost of living is just as unsustainable as what I've got now. And so I'm not going to do it. And so we're seeing lower levels of migration toward those kinds of um job opportunities. And there that loops us back to this kind of structure of our government problem, which is that if this, you know, example kind of Pennsylvania homeowner says like, no, thanks, I'm not moving to Texas. Um, They have the power of, you know, the Senate and the larger structure of government to sort of demand attention on their own turf. And I think that's, you know, that's a, a, bigger kind of reality of um, of our politics uh, right at this moment. And that's, you know, that will that whole discussion will lead us in the direction of sort of picturing this as a rural white problem. Um, but honestly, you know, the post-industrial America is super diverse. And that's a major distortion of the Trump coalition and, you know, this sort of populist moment that the people who are most dislocated in the economy and, you know, facing regional scale concentrated poverty are all white. You know, that's just not true. Um, So in this book, I'm really trying to hold the larger stretch of places that that are dealing with this this larger problem of sort of what's what's our future and how do we make this a a town where people could leave to move to opportunity, God bless them. They could stay here and, you know, have a decent quality of life. Um, but this town is not going to trap them um, 
in intergenerational poverty. Yeah, there's so there's so many interesting things going on there because there's, as you mentioned, there's a lot of misunderstanding of the Trump coalition, um, in part because I think the, uh, there's plenty of evidence that the the poorest folks in the United States are not the ones that are voting for Donald Trump. Um, there are kind of specific um, demographic characteristics that that you know the kind of Trump voters have. Um, it is, I mean, the Trump coalition itself is is you know, very white. But of course, that doesn't mean that dislocated people and, 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 you know, people that live in poverty are overwhelmingly right. That would be, you know, very misrepresentative of our actual situation. So that's itself a very interesting thing. I mean, one, you know, another piece of, of course, our, um, our politics that are relevant here is just that, you know, at the end of the day, voters can vote and voters will ha- will have their voices heard if it's through the electoral college or the senate or some other situation you know the the cultural and economic power um you know can be highly con- concentrated and that can, that does translate to a certain amount of political power but i think at the end of the day you know if you just neglect people and you just allow places to you know be di- you know disinvested um you know that's going to show up in the political process one way or the other Yeah. And, you know, that's such a beautiful landing spot because I really came to observe so closely just over and over again. I did 250 interviews for this book. I talked to lots of people who really are on the front lines of these problems. And a theme that I heard over and over again is that trust in government and trust in strangers, you know, just any level of institution, civic society, that starts to civil society, sorry, starts to really break down down when a place has been stuck in poverty or, you know, when it has become this sort of larger poverty trap for a long time. And that breakdown in basic trust and cooperation is especially destructive when people don't have much money. Because the reality is that when you don't have a lot of cash, like people have to work together and sort of pool their staff, their expertise, their resources, their equipment. They've really got to, um, you know, start to coordinate their efforts in order to um, advance. And so at some level, you know, the, the fight to save the town part of this book, the part that was so redemptive and just hopeful for me in reporting it, was to see how people sort of weave society back together mm-hmm. and really try to rebuild that basic trust. And I think if, you know, as you think about the layers of a government of, you know, primitively kind of federal, state, local, if, if, you know, and as you know, levels of basic trust in America tend to be, uh, trust in government in America Mm -hmm. tend to be higher at the local level. But in places like this, they can be quite low. And once there's no trust anywhere up the chain, it really does lead to a larger rot in democracy in which people lower their expectations for government. They start to fantasize about heroic alternatives to democracy. They start to really kind of disengage in voting and participation and um Anyway, so the, you know, that's the vicious cycle part of it. And really what I was trying to sit with and find and celebrate at some level in this book is people who are, um, who are creating the virtuous cycle, really trying to turn their community toward a form of participation um, and, uh, and change, you know, really saying like, what do we want and working together to achieve that. And I think that will really, you know, it, it does. I mean, you can see it in these towns. It, it filters back up the chain. If you teach people to be participants and leaders in a local government, they're going to turn out um, in larger scales of politics too. Yeah, I mean, this just is like goes back to like some of the founding kind of notions of why we have government the way we have it set up, right? Is that, you know, having local government serves as a kind of a training ground and an opportunity to, for people to participate in politics um, and having those experiences is is very important. And it's, it's very different from, you know, a, a condition where there's just the one remote you know, Washington, D.C. based government or wherever, one remote centralized government run by experts and elites that you have no, you have no day to day. You have, you experience it day to day in the conditions of your life, um, but you don't have a, a participatory role to play, except maybe, uh, you know, occasionally voting. 
Yeah, um, and I mean, sorry, Mike, I just can't resist, yeah. but just focusing because it's such an interesting line of discussion to me because so in these types of communities, there's a very strong perception of the dominance of government that even in places that are super weak locally. So by definition, every place that I've written about in this book has a very weak local state. It has a collapse in basic local services that in wealthier places we take for granted. So, you know, 911 that has no officers to dispatch or no emergency services to dispatch, um, a, you know, absence of, of staff to get the water treatment formula is correct to deliver clean water to people or an absence of access to public water at all. Um, and, you know, closure of public libraries. I mean, on and on, these basic services that we take for granted start to collapse. And yet, in these weak state places, people have a sense that government is dominant and it's coming from federal policy, whether it's environmental mm. law or immigration law. And it's also coming from state law because states fund the um, the uh, incarceration systems and mm. so much of the cost of answering poverty with policing. And um, and they also fund the courts that enforce contracts, including leases through eviction law. So one of the things I observed is that because we don't, you know, the average person doesn't always have a clear sense of who does what in government. Mm -hmm. You can live in a in essentially, you know, in a very weak state environment like Detroit and still feel like the government is dangerous and, and present in your daily life. Also, child dependency, I should have mentioned that. Yeah. The dominance of family law through the state um, systems means that people have a sense that the state is is strong, maybe too strong sometimes in ways that endangers their liberty or their families and or their housing or so forth. Anyway, so this it's all these distortions that happen. And again, this the more positive spin that I'm trying to sit with in the book is is people who are really trying to rebuild that local level so that government's trying to do something for you other than just punish you. Hmm. I mean, what does yep. it mean for government to like look out for you and your family? Yeah, I wanna turn back to this at some point, the the kind of question of rebuilding trust and, and how that works, because it is a fascinating component of the book. And and just to reiterate, this is a, it is so fascinating, such a distorted thing in a sense that you know, as the state gets dialed back, it's the ways that you're going to have positive interactions with the state that get dialed back first. And the, and the residuum is police and, you know, evictions and child protective services. And like, of course, we need all of those things. I mean, to varying degrees. But um, but if that's all that people's experiences with the states are, with the state writ large is, um, they're not going to have a very positive impression of, of the capacity of the state to do good in their lives. Exactly. Yeah. And so yeah. the, you know, and it's, and what's interesting about really broke places is that the government can't, local governments now just talking about, you know, cities and counties, you know, they really don't have a lot of money. They can't, you know, fix that problem by riding in with big programs. As one county commissioner said it in Oregon, the book sits in one county in Southern Oregon called Josephine County, but I did a bunch of research on other counties in Oregon too. And a county commissioner elsewhere at one point said, the cavalry is not coming. Mm -hmm. And he really meant the higher tiers of government as in, you know, Oregon's not coming, DC is not coming, you know, we're going to have to figure out some of these problems on our own. But also it's interesting, you know, at the local level, people don't have the resources to kind of buy their way out of these problems either. And so the reconstruction that has to happen is across the private sector, too. It's sort of getting business owners at the table. It's getting nonprofits coordinated with one another. It's getting churches involved. It's really starting, you know, it's trying to sew that fabric of civil society back together so that institutions can can work together again um, and government can participate in that. It can lead in that sometimes um, and it can certainly uh, throw some weight around because in very weak places, as weak as local government is, it's often, you know, one of the biggest employers left in the town. Mm -hmm. And so it's got some weight to throw around and it's 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 got to be part of the solution, but um, but it can't be the only answer. So 
So just for a moment, I, I wanted to return to the kind of the suit, suitcase solution question and the kind of moving away, um, you know, moving to economic opportunity argument. Because I'll admit to <laughs> uh, someone who's done that, uh, someone who's moved away to, to economic opportunity. And in just in, in observing my my hometown where I grew up, um, you know, one of the things I noted is that folks who graduated from college basically none of them still live there. And the folks who didn't go to college, a huge percentage of them did. So the folks who um, kind of had opportunities outside tended to pursue them. And so I wanted to, to, to kind of maybe press on this or take a devil's advocate just to flesh out the idea. So the argument from the economist position or that the kind of, you know, we're taking a very uh, <laughs> idealized economist position would be, you know, there was an economic logic to a lot of these places. There was industry. Again, where I grew up, there was, you know, there was manufacturing of a certain kind that produced a lot of jobs. Um, that's just gone. Um, globalization, automation, these big forces that exist um, that, that are kind of just economic realities have um, or that are baked in, even if we didn't have to make those choices. We've made those choices and they've undermined the economic logic of these places. And we kind of have two options. Either we can subsidize them indefinitely, right? And that would be the idea is, you know, over time, the state, as you note in the book, states have uh, make up a, a smaller proportion of local government's budgets and more is being driven by kind of local taxes. We could reverse that and subsidize these places um, by providing more revenue uh, from the state or from states or from the federal government. And that, again, to provide the economic kind of perspective on this, that creates an incentive for people to stay where they are rather than moving to economic opportunity. And that'll be bad because it reduces dynamicism and, you know, and overall productivity of the economy. And that they were caught on the horns of this dilemma. Either we face the difficulties that you chronicle of, you know, gradually declining places, um, and, and that's bad, uh, and we can kind of recognize that's bad, but the alternative would be to just kind of keep them on life support for a long, longer period of time. And as a consequence, we're going to get, um, you know, we're going to get all, a lot of the same types of harms, but we're just going to prolong that. So I think that would be something like the, the case in, in broad strokes. I actually think you make a very compelling argument in the book that gateway cities in this way provide us with a, you know, out of the horns of this dilemma. But I just wanted to offer that kind of argument for, for, for your comment and response. Yeah, it's such an important line of debate at the big picture, regional policy level, and just as we think about um, redistribution of federal taxes. Um, so I'm really glad you asked. I think, so the first thing I would say is that, you know, with respect to stories like yours of sort of moving toward opportunity, that's wonderful. And that's a deeply embedded in American culture and that form of liberty that we can move toward opportunities, that we can sort of move toward education, that we can try and better our families lot is, you know, God forbid, I should try to disturb any of that individual liberty. I would never even... Um, try. I would actually quote Jessica Andors here, who's an incredible advocate in Lawrence, Massachusetts, that I worked really closely with and learning about Lawrence. And um, at one point, Jess said, um, quote, Lawrence should be a good enough Sorry, Lawrence should be good enough to get a good start. It should be a healthy enough community that people can come here, be welcome, learn English, retain their own language and culture, pass it on to their kids and get a start, even if they do move out and go other places. And to me, that captures beautifully the aspiration. Like, yes, part of the job of these places has to give people the opportunity to move. That's their job is to help people get out. The problem is that when you leave these places to, you know, die on the vine for 40, 50 years, as we've done, people end up unable to move because the town breaks them first. And I think we are now, you know, decades into the consequences, you know, the opioid crisis is just a symptom of this longer problem that, you know, you leave this problem and lots of people don't move in part because they're so broke that they don't have the few hundred bucks to kind of get out and get a start, let alone a security deposit in an expensive place. Um, 
So it's actually harder and harder to get out given the intensity of the poverty, but also the levels of violence and exposure to drugs like really break some people first. And the so, you know, I again, I don't want to engage in the kind of pathologizing of these communities or kind of pretend I, I don't want to engage in that kind of dystopic rhetoric about them. But I think, you know, the experiment that we could solve deindustrialization through domestic migration has run for 40 years. And here we are. So the, you know, and at the end of the the book, I, I won't go deeply into it, but if folks read it, I would on your line of questioning that I wrote an epilogue about a woman named Joanne Pena, who um, who has a really tough mm-hmm. run as a child and um, ends up as part of her childhood in Lawrence, Massachusetts again, and um, and then uh, makes it out of Lawrence like all of her siblings. They all kind of make it to Sunbelt, you know, high opportunity zones. In Joanne's case, she makes it to Virginia. And in Virginia, she gets the best job of her life. She makes 40 grand a year. She is, um, which uh, for the cost of living in her town is putting her in debt. But, you know, she's scrapping out a living, super proud of that income. Um, and, uh, And, you know, then there's a series of hardships that hit Joanne as they do in life, and especially for people that have larger networks of kind of scar tissue in their families that come from uh, long-term poverty. And, um, and she, uh, and, you know, she gets like knocked off of this life that she's building in Virginia. And it's Lawrence that takes her in again through, really through social services and the strength of the networks and the community um, and, you know, some of the programs and efforts that I'd written about in Lawrence that really find Joanne and get her back on her feet. And when she's back on her feet, what does she do? She leaves again. And to me, that's exactly what Lawrence needs to do. It's the idea is not to trap Joanne and Lawrence. She doesn't owe Lawrence anything. But nor is, you know, but look at what Lawrence has done. Lawrence has like sheltered her family, sort of taken them in at times when when they really needed that. And you used this term gateway cities that I write with write about in the introduction. I love that term because we have a pretty um you know, common way of describing poverty traps, you know, people stuck in intergenerational poverty and, you know, unable to get out of their town, but also their, um, their status. And, um, and I think we need to really think about what the alternative is to that. What, what is a gateway city? And that term comes from Massachusetts state policy. Um, There it's used to capture first homes for new Americans so that people can, um, you know, learn English and sort of assimilate or, you know, integrate into the larger American culture. Um, but uh, but I like gateway cities as a socioeconomic aspiration, too, that people have choices and they have chances. You know, the town is going to be good enough that they have, you know, a basic level of education and personal safety so that they actually could leave, <laughs> you know. So anyway, that's that's the thing. And yes, the you know, there's a larger public policy debate um, that has to do with, you know, indefinite subsidization of so-called dying regions. But to me, sitting here in 2022, where we've reduced subsidies over the last 40 years and we've really kind of run this larger experiment about whether these places would all depopulate to zero and um nope <laughs> they didn't. Right. Right. <laughs> so ceg opioid crisis <laughs> right right yeah and, and just the just this idea that you know to have the, the the smooth functioning labor market the idealized smooth functioning labor market where people are moving to opportunity um, it's kind of nice theoretically, but people need resources to be able to do that. Um, people need, um, you know, they need to not, as you kind of have said, if, if people have these bad experiences 
um, growing up or they're just not invested in it, right? They just lack educational opportunities. Um, I mean, you know, investment in early childhood from your, from parents, from the, from the state in terms of schools and so on is just incredibly important for people's long-term prospects. And if we're just failing to make those investments for a huge tranches of the American public, we just can't expect them to be in a position to participate in the, in the contemporary um, labor market. And so they're not going to move because as you note in the book, the, the less, you know, the less money you have in the bank, the more you have to rely on your social networks and, and family connections and the like to loan you money in an emergency or come even I, I use the analogy of just literally moving from one place to the other. You can do it by having friends come over and help you pack up or you can hire someone. That's kind of like the choice. And if you don't have money and you don't have friends, then, you know, you literally can't move because you can't physically move your stuff around. So, um, so I thought that was a really, uh, a really important contribution. That's something I had not, frankly, um, given much consideration to is, is the importance of building that foundation that people need if they're going to be, um, you know, participating in this, you know, smoothly functioning dynamic labor market. Yeah, that's so well said. And I have two, you know, stories again, you know, on this theory that, you know, people need stories to really mm-hmm. ground an alternative understanding to these problems. But I have two stories in response to that. One is a woman, she's not actually in the book, but she was an amazing uh, woman that I met in Flint. And I did a long um, interview with her. Um, and, uh, and she was in her young 30s. She had two teenage sons that were kind of coming into probably about, if I recall, something like um, ninth grade and seventh grade or so. And um, and she had grown up in Flint. Her mom lived in Flint. She was dying to get out of Flint, dying to you know move toward opportunity, really wanted a better life for her sons. She is African-American. She was incredibly worried about raising black boys in, in Flint and um, wanted to move. And so she got her family to Dallas. She got the three of them, not her mom, to Dallas. And um, and she really thought her, her sons were safer there. She really felt like it was working for them. She was eking out a living. It was very hard to make ends meet, but she felt like they were safer. And then her mom got really sick and she could not afford to have her mom in Texas. There was no way to kind of get her mom out of Flint. There was no way to sustain her mom's health care and so forth in Texas, let alone her housing, you know, to get her an extra room. And so the daughter did what, you know, she felt duty bound to do, which was move home to Flint to care for her mom. And it was just a basic example of this inter, you know, these sort of generational pulls, you know, that people feel the reality is that she's a daughter and she's also a mother. And at some level, she's got these, you know, responsibilities pulling in different directions. And so that's one thing that I've just never forgotten. Like people have to remember these are real people with families. They have deeper responsibilities than just their job prospects, you know. And then the um, the second thing is, you know, I'm I I don't live in Palo Alto, but I work there. And um, uh, Palo Alto is, uh, you know, as your listeners will know, a very, very wealthy town that has systematically blockaded high density housing and any form of affordable housing. It's been an exceptionally regressive um, uh, town in terms of its uh, housing policy for the most part. And um, and the, so that's Palo Alto. It invested $76 million in its library system, which I see as very symbolic because I wrote about Stockton, where many of the low-wage workers for Palo Alto's economy live. Palo Alto has the university. It's got two giant hospital complexes, tons of restaurants. It's got this teeming low-wage service workforce that helped to drive Palo Alto's commercial economy. And so those workers are coming in from towns like Stockton, which means they're spending about three hours a day away from their kids. And Stockton's entire library system had to be pulled out of the poorest neighborhoods, sort of saving the main branch by kind of drinking the whole system back to the center. Um, So they couldn't even afford to keep their libraries in low-income neighborhoods open at all, in addition to many other dramatic budget cuts. 
And um, and so, you know, and meanwhile, Stockton's 325,000 people. So what is it? What's a suitcase solution for Stockton? Like that's a giant city, you know, in any other city in, in states that are less populous and California, you know, that would be like a, a ranking big city. And so the idea that you're just going to like get everybody out of Stockton is is just absurd. Um, and meanwhile, you know, this larger, you know, the prosperity in Palo Alto is dependent on the people of Stockton. So there are big picture moral questions to me that sit across dynamics like that of sort of what does what does Palo Alto owe Stockton? Not nothing. <laughs> and, you know, that anyway, so I don't want to get too preachy, but, <laughs> sometimes, you know, and I think in the last year I looked at it, Palo Alto permitted 80 new housing units. Um, oh, it's just ridiculous. The idea that, you know, we're going to solve Stockton's problems by, um, you know, waiting to relocate people, I think is, is, um, is not realistic. All it does, it, it it's important. I mean, I think Palo Alto's intransigence over um, affordable housing is a, is a terrifying public policy problem that is all over the Bay Area, and it deserves concentrated answers. Um, but uh, but meanwhile, you know, Stockton's raising up all these kids, and it's going to keep doing that every single year. So the question is, what? future what opportunities do those kids have yeah one of the, the the really interesting observations in the book just kind of feeding off of this you know if we were assuming that the suitcase strategy isn't going to work or we found what's well, not an assumption at this point we could say that we've, we tried it and it hasn't worked is you know what does it mean to to reinvest in and to take the focus off of you know draining people out of an area but instead say okay we are going to to provide um, reinvestment and, and the you know the contrast one of the contrasts I take from the from the book is um, kind of a redevelopment approach which you know um, put money into the downtown um, make some fancy lofts um, you know uh, present a, a, a location as a place where you know young professionals can come and you know the prices are are lower and rents are cheaper and you know you can uh, you can get on Zoom and you can work that way as a, so that's kind of one or you know put in a stadium put in some nice restaurants or whatever that's kind of one approach which you contrast with an alternative around investing in current current residents so so what is that contrast and and what have we learned from experiences with the redevelopment approach and what do you what do you see as some of the the key markers of a you know a resident based existing resident based um, model of of investing in these places yeah, so you you described it well. I think that you know, for decades so much of local public policy in towns like this has been focused on downtown redevelopment as a kind of um of uh Hail Mary that if you if you invest in the downtown and you make it pretty and you bring some jobs and some activity that you'll attract tourists to spend money there, you know, suburbanites or whatever it is, that you'll and you'll bring back new residents and people will, you know, spend money in the town, et cetera. And, you know, I really believe in built environments. I'm not a kind of, you know, I'm married to an architect who does very high density of housing and, you know, really believes in the impact of the built environment on people's psyche and their safety and so forth. So I those changes can be really important and a gutted downtown is not good for a city. So I understand that. Having said that, you know, that, so that's option number one is like big splashy redevelopment of the downtown. Option number two that we've been trying at for, you know, so long, just throwing good money after bad has been, you know, giant subsidies of, of big employers. So, you know, your listeners will be very familiar with the, the just race to attract Amazon's HQ2 and the just unbelievable lengths that states and cities went to try to attract Amazon's HQ2 to their town. And in order to try to seduce Amazon to pick them in this giant national competition, um, places really agreed to just slather 
you know, Amazon with benefits, whether it's infrastructure investments or tax exemptions measured by the decade or, you know, rebranding of their parks, use Amazon's name. I mean, just one thing after another, like, what can we do for you? And so local governments have been doing both of these things, like heroic redevelopment, heroic economic development, these big subsidy packages. And, you know, we there's been so much ink spilled in the urban policy literature about the problems with those things and the failed promises and the cost benefit analysis that is fake and looks good up front, but, you know, never delivers the jobs or the tax revenue over the long run. So we've known about that, those the problems with those two strategies for so long. And there's all kinds of reasons that local governments still play those games because, you know, officials want the ribbon cutting. They want the press release of the good news. There's a focus that, you know, within, you know, a quick um, electoral cycle, you know, you can make progress on deals like either in either of those categories. What I wrote about in the book was, you know, pushing aside those kinds of interventions for a moment, I wrote about what it looks like to try to invest in your people, which which is entirely designed to make more Mike Livermore's, right? Like, how do we, you know, give the kids of this town a chance to leave if that's what they want? And so how do you invest in the people of your town, not just in your, you know, some outside chain movie theater that says they can sell a few tickets? Um, so, uh, you know, that's what this book is really about. And it's about the, in Stockton, I wrote about the really important reparative anti-trauma work that has to happen in places that have dealt with very high levels of violence over time, as so many kids have, um, and just adults have been witnesses to violence and been in families that have lost loved ones to violence, um, and have lost loved ones to incarceration as the main answer to violence. This is, you know, an, an experiment that has been playing out for a long time in American public policy. And Stockton is an epicenter of incarceration as an answer to violence. So you get these, um, you get a lot of fallout of just trauma from all of this um exposure to violence and the loss of loved ones. So in Stockton, I really write about that reparative work of sort of helping people to feel safe in their own bodies, to move again through the city, to work with each other, to work with strangers, to really try to, um, you know, uh, free them from the the costs of this violence over time. And and then in, um, in Lawrence, I looked at really incredible work to build um, systems of adult education to get people up the chain in jobs and income, really, like, what does it look like in the 21st century to try and raise adult wages? And Lawrence is working on that problem in ways that are totally fascinating and brilliant, in my opinion. Um, in Detroit, I wrote about the work to try to stabilize housing from what it has been a catastrophic and ongoing foreclosure crisis in the city, way beyond the Great Recession and up to the present. Um, and Detroit, unfortunately, is um, emblematic of a lot of Rust Belt towns where um, there's been a lot of reinvestment in large-scale real estate portfolios that are being sold at you know, a song and that return of, of big capital to try and drink up these giant real estate portfolios is leading to very high rates of foreclosure of incredibly poor families across the Rust Belt. So that, you know, they're working on that problem, which is, you know, a macroeconomic kind of change in where big capital is flowing, but then also, you know, coming down to ground as a urgent displacement crisis in at the household level. So that's on the housing side. And then in Josephine, I really wrote about rebuilding trust in government in a place that's super right wing and very, or at least politically, um, uh, where, you know, there's very low levels of trust and expectation of government at all, how you um, mobilize people for a kind of grassroots movement to reinvest in in their government. So anyway, these are like deeper resident centered solutions that are really trying to get at these 
larger problems in wages and housing and safety. Um, and, you know, you don't cut ribbons on stuff like that. You know, it's not the politicians aren't going to get as much immediate credit. Um, but the work is um, it's the work that has to be done, in my opinion. You know, you don't get to kind of shortcut it. Yeah, and one of the and and just immediately kind of all of those examples um, in the in the in the book really really come through. And and one of the impressions that I got was just how how different all of these stories are, right? The, you know, there is something that holds all of these stories together, which is conditions of border to border poverty and disinvestment and certain challenges that they face. But then the solutions, at least the solutions that you focus your stories around are very different from each other. Um, and so I wonder, you know, just kind of abstracting up to a, to a higher level, is this just the kind of thing where each town, each population, each place kind of requires its own set of solutions, its own set of, um, uh, you know, just activities or whatever to address these its own particular challenges, or are there kind of broader lessons or um, you know general principles that can be applied uh, that that are that are more cross cutting that could be implemented in a in a more systematic way? Yeah, I mean, so it it's one of the things I say in the introduction is that I I don't think we're ready to write a playbook yet for this kind of resident-centered government. And I'm not even sure such a thing would exist. What I was interested in trying to do in the book was really create a sort of proof of concept or sort of, you know, hold out these examples of progress that are being made. Um, and also I use that word progress really carefully to remind us that you can't wait for transformation in single generations. You know, these are problems that have been accumulating for so long. And so you're not going to have a single mayor who, you know, puts on their red, red cape and saves the day. So instead, we have to be like looking for signs of progress, not just resolution. Um, but in any event, it's sort of a proof of concept that people can move on these bigger challenges. And that in these towns, these were the kind of locally adapted responses. Um, ha having said all of that, and well, one other thing I'll just say about it is that over and over again, I also heard that, you know, people who really work on the front lines of these challenges rarely believe that you can box up their model and just export it to another town. Um, and here I'm reminded of something that this, again, is Jess Andor. She's very wise. So I guess it's not a surprise that I quoted her twice in an interview. But Jess Andor's and Lawrence was describing to me the difference between Lawrence and then Lowell, Massachusetts, and then New York City, all of whom have high levels of concentrated poverty in, um, immigra in immigrant-rich contexts in which a lot of people are foreign-born. And she was saying how it really matters that in Lowell, a lot of the migrants to Lowell came from places beset by war, in which it was incredibly dangerous for people to speak out in public, as she put it at one point very vividly, you know, speaking in public could get your brother's head cut off. So she said that's really different than Lawrence, where there's a lot of economic migrants who've really come to Lawrence seeking jobs and are um, coming from, you know, poverty push factors, not war in um, or not as commonly pushed by war. And she said, you know, so that's an important difference between Lawrence and Lowell. You have to build different kinds of organizing tactics, uh, you know, for communities that are really afraid of public participation than you do, you know, communities that are not. And then similarly, she was saying New York City is different than both of those where, you know, in New York City, people are not going to open their homes to each other. It's, you know, just such a giant scale of city, much more, you know, housing turnover and so forth. And so you can't build an organizing model in which people, you know, open their living rooms to a bunch of strangers from their block where you can do that in Lawrence, because it really sometimes does feel like a small town where people will open their homes to each other if they're given the right kind of structure and formula for doing that. Um, so anyway, her point was that these places, you have to show up for the people you have, you have to learn about them, you have to understand the kind of backgrounds that bring them to this moment. And if your goal is to try to build networks of 
action and, you know, um, cooperation among them, you've got to sort of listen to who that, you know, who that community is and sort of adapt your strategies for, for their needs. Um, yeah. So I, th- I think that's, that's important. So that's the big caveat is like, yeah, this is not a boxed, you know, policy list. Um, uh, having said that, I do think that at some level, there's no getting around that, um, that some of the work that has to happen in places like this is um, mutual aid at the institutional level. So, you know, after the pandemic, we talked so much, of course, about mutual aid um, among individuals, you know, young people shopping for elder people's groceries and so forth. But I think part of what I'm documenting across these four places is the way that you also need mutual aid at the institutional level. And there's a lot of different ways to build that kind of cooperation and joint enterprise. And, you know, each of these four chapters has examples of that. Um, But I think at some level, that kind of social repair and social cooperation is, um, is a, is a necessary and probably universal component of progress and a universal component of hope, you know, just like at some level, do people believe that positive change is possible in their community? Do they have a sense of friendship and joint purpose with other people around them? Um, and, uh, you know, so that maybe that sounds generic, but the truth is I think sometimes we lose sight of that because we think that if we just got, you know, this one federal grant program exactly right, um, that, you know, everything would be better. But at the end of the day, that federal grant program's got to land on a real network of local people who know how to work together effectively and deliver. Yeah. Um, so, so thanks so much for for taking the time to chat with me. This has been a really fun conversation. I've got one final question for you, if you if you'll indulge me. This uh, is a little. I noticed in in the book that um, you, you seem to have an you have an affinity. I think um, correct me if I'm wrong with with labor history. There's you know various kind of the wobbly show up and various figures in, in American labor history. And I and I wondered if 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 that kind of was intentional and, and if there's some relationship here between what you think of as the kind of problems of the contemporary era. And 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 something we can get out of the 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 labor history that we have in the U.S. that is often, I think, um, kind of buried or sometimes can be can be forgotten. Oh, that's such a cool question, Mike. I don't know. I mean, I might need to think about that. I didn't notice that I have that hardwired attraction to the labor movement, but I probably do. I mean, it's interesting in American. If you go back through our speeches and kind of our political discourse, I think there have been very few periods in our history where we've really had an explicit language to talk about, about poverty and really, you know, um, uh, a, a focus on, on, um, empowerment and, and solidarity and progress, um, on the, on the problem of entrenched poverty. And, you know, certainly that the labor movement is one of those periods, the sixties and the beginnings of the poor people's movement and the civil rights movement at some level, you know, are such flowerings of that kind of language and, and leadership and writing. Um, and, you know, and I think that in the aftermath of the 80s in which so much pathologizing of poverty and, you know, the undeserving poor rhetoric sort of became so prominent, um, we just have less of that. And I think about Reverend Barber in North Carolina as, you know, such an important leader and sort of giving us current language for really thinking about where poverty comes from and what to do about it. And even figures like John Kerry, you know, are sort of temporary moments of, you know, um, vocabulary even for sort of focusing on poverty and, you know, Sanders and Warren in their way too. Um, So in any event, that's all to say that, yes, I'm drawn to people who actually write about, who talk about, who think about poverty as sort of a source of strength and solidarity and, and, um, uh, you know, and who really believe in the power of, of people, um, and, you know, who, who don't talk about poverty as kind of this stigmatized, um, condition of want. 
Um, so I think maybe it's related to that. At a narrow level, the story of the Wobblies comes up, as you know, because it's so fascinating to me, the historical echo that in, in 1912, Lawrence was famous for a really important strike in which they managed to get up textile wages by 15 percent. And that underlying question of sort of, OK, that's how you do that in 1912. You know, you strike against single employers, you know, that are um, dominant all across a region. But here in the early 21st century, like that's not going to be the model. If you want to get up wages by 15 percent, um, you're going to have to do something different. And so what I was, you know, really sitting with in Lawrence is like, you know, basically, a hundred years later, when they really started this adult wage effort in Lawrence, you know, what does that look like now? And a lot of things have have changed. One thing that has not changed is the terrible pathologizing of Lawrence, you know, mm. then and now. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, thanks so much for for this book and for for a really interesting conversation. Um, it's really been a, a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. Those were terrific questions, Mike. That was really a pleasure.